Let's open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And this evening we're continuing and we're bumping into the 14th verse. And what we're looking at is just one concept. And my goal is to divide uh, this time of going through the Thessalonian epistles into incremental units, into pieces, into standalone lessons from God's Word, rather than letting them kind of string together and, and uh, be kind of an endless continuation. Each one should stand alone. So we're just looking at one concept tonight, and that is when Jesus returns. Okay, now that can mean a lot of things to a lot of people, depending on where you come from, your background, uh, spiritually when you came to Christ, what kind of church you came to Christ in what books you've read since then. And so when I say when Jesus returns, for some people it's kind of vague, uh-huh, I think it's going to happen. For others it is finely tuned down and they have a very profound sense of biblical eschatology, heschatos, the study of last things. But what I'm just going to briefly share, let me read to you this and I'll underline just the words uh, that are important starting in verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians 4. But we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as the rest who have no hope. Christians, pagans. Verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him, bring with him, so people are coming with Jesus, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So this is Jesus coming with the saints, okay? Now that could be both returns. Verse 15, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be, now listen, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Ah, that's the key of what this passage is about. When Jesus returns and stays in the air is what we're talking about tonight not to be confused with when Jesus returns and doesn't stay in the air okay so Jesus is returning and and don't don't lose me because some of you believe that it's part of the Apostles Creed it's part of the confession it's part of good doctrine but this passage seems to present what I believe is a different return it's when Jesus returns in the air now listen to this. The climax of all human history is coming. The purposes of God so long hidden in his eternal counsels are now being made clear. Jesus will soon step back into history, no longer as a suffering servant, rather as he always is, the Lord of all. Look closely. In God's word we see God pulling back the veil and revealing the awesome majesty of our King of Kings and Lord of Lords, as he in all of his glory steps forth. As we look at each facet of his wondrous character, let your heart rest in the security that comes of trusting him. And see the folly of the world, as all around us they deafen their ears to all the warnings that God has given them from all time since the Garden of Eden. However, there are two separate moments coming in the perhaps not-too-distant future when life as we know it will forever be altered. The first moment, and that's what 
verses 13 and 14 and on through 18 are talking about in 1 Thessalonians. The first moment of two is the unexpected sweeping away out of this earth of Christ's church. The unexpected, I mean, there's no signs, no chronology, no calendar, no, it's just in an instant, unexpectedly. Sweeping, that's the word that's used, it's for scooping away out of this earth of Christ's church. That's what this passage is talking about. Listen, the Bible teaches that the rapture, or, now listen to the distinction here, Jesus coming for his saints takes place first, followed by seven years, and after seven years, his second coming with his saints to rescue Israel. There's a very sharp distinction in the Bible for that. First, he's coming for his saints. Later, he comes with them to rescue Israel. There are no signs for the rapture. No warning that it's about to occur. All the signs listed in the Bible are for the second coming of Christ. Jesus Christ comes secretly to catch his saints up to heaven. And at that moment, the world is living in self-complacent pleasure. The world will seemingly be on its way to solving all of its ecological problems and establishing a perpetual international one-world peace, which we're well on the way to right now. Believers in the rapture have always been widely ridiculed, but the Bible warns few Christians will be expectantly awaiting this glorious event. Are you eagerly watching for Christ's return? Are your faces, as it were, pressed against the glass, waiting as headlights coming in the driveway to take you out of this place and take you home? Will the unsaved world be aware of what's happening? Will they hear the shout? Will they hear the voice of the trumpet that's in this text? 1 Corinthians 15.52 says that it's going to happen so suddenly that it will be over in the twinkling of an eye. And since the shout, the voice, and the trumpet apply to God's people, there's no reason to believe the unsaved masses will ever hear them. And if they do, they'll hear sounds without meaning, as in John 12, 27, when God spoke to people all around. Jesus heard it. But the people all around said, what was that? Was that thunder? What's going on? But Jesus heard the voice of God. Millions of people will vanish instantly. And no doubt, there'll be great chaos and concern. Except for those who know the Bible, the world will wonder what happened. What's the distinction? Well, at the rapture, saints meet Christ in the air. That's what we see right here. To meet the Lord in the air, verse 17. But at the second coming, Christ doesn't hover in the air. He comes to the earth. At the rapture, the Mount of Olives is untouched. In fact, it's not even in the equation. At the second coming, Jesus comes, and when his feet touch down at his re-entry into this atmosphere, in this planet, when his feet touch down, there is a great cataclysmic, geographic, geological, topographical change in the earth, and the Mount of Olives splits and opens a great valley going down to the Dead Sea and out to the Mediterranean. At the rapture, living saints are translated. They're transformed into celestial bodies. At the second coming, there's no translation. There's a world that's mourning and and asking for the rocks to cover him and kill him because they see him coming. And he comes and he lingers and it says the sign of the Son of Man shall be in the earth and all the people will mourn and 
it's totally different. At the rapture, the body goes to heaven, but at the second coming, no bodies go to heaven. Rather, Christ's body, his church, comes to earth to live. At the rapture, Christ comes just for his saints. At the second coming, Christ comes with his saints to judge the earth. At the rapture, the world is not judged, and sin only gets more and more powerfully multiplied. At the second coming, the world is judged, and sin is dealt with. At the rapture, there are no detailed signs or warnings. At the second coming, there are specific and detailed signs. In fact, there's a whole roadmap in the book of the Revelation that tells each event as it unfolds and when Christ will come. At the rapture, only the saved are touched by it. At the second coming, the saved come in triumph and the lost face doom. Well, these are most certainly separate events. And after the rapture, the tribulation will come. And then, do you know what happens? It says this in Revelation 16, 11. Most people think, well, maybe after all that, people will start believing. But it says in Revelation 16, 11, after God pulls out all the stops and shows his power and his glory, it says in verse 11, they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pain and the sores that all the tribulation brought them, and they refused to repent of their deeds. Sad, isn't it? The tribulation will be a terrible time for sinners, but it's certainly not a time for Christians to endure. Well, the second moment, and that's what I want to cover to show how different it is, the first moment in God's prophetic calendar, the next moment is the rapture. But what we've all heard about Christ's return is the second moment. It's totally different from this rapture, and it's the day of the Lord. It's Christ's return in glory. It's when he takes powerful vengeance on the earth. It will be a time of strange signs in the sky. The sun will start dimming, much to the dismay of the astronomers. The moon will turn as red as blood. Meteors will begin to crash to the earth, even to the point of poisoning our atmosphere and our water. The sun will crank up then and become so hot, it actually will burn the flesh of people who are exposed to its fearsome rays. Earth dwellers will begin to faint for fear as they look at the sights going on. At one climactic moment, countless fiends will race from a deadly abyss and break out of a fissure in the ground near the Middle East somewhere by the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. And from that fissure, like bats from a cave, these demonic monsters will darken the sky. Their, their bodies are impervious to all weapons, and their way will horribly find them worming into even the most secure rooms on this planet. And when they face any human, they will inflict upon them the vilest of venom that burns with such intensity that people will be paralyzed as agony sets in. Does that look like verse 13? Look at 1 Thessalonians 4:13. I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Don't grieve like the rest who have no hope. We who believe in Jesus, that he died and rose again, God will bring them with him, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And this I say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and, and remain to the coming of the Lord, we're not going to go ahead of those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trump of God. The dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with the Lord in the clouds. And we'll always be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. Now look at chapter 5, verse 1. 
Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need anything written unto you, for you yourselves know full well the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Thieves in the night are not comforting thoughts to me. That's why most Americans that are afraid of thieves in the night have 45s in their nightstand, and they have elaborate security systems and guard dogs. There's nothing comforting about thinking of a thief coming in the night. He comes when you don't expect it, and he comes to do damage. There's a great contrast here between 4, 13 to 18, and 5 onward. And basically, the scriptures tell us that the rapture that we have seen in verses 13 through 18 are an escape. Now, that's one of the criticisms of them. A lot of people say, you Christians, you, you have this escape balloon. You have an, a parachute philosophy. You have a theology of escapism. Well, I'll tell you what, let me read to you what we're escaping from, and then we'll see whether or not you think it's wise that God's letting us escape from it. Because what the rapture allows us to escape is called the tribulation. And the tribulation, which is coming to this planet, needs to be something we escape from. Turn to the end of the Bible for just a second. I want to give you a five-minute survey of Revelation 6 through 8. In Revelation 6 through 8, if you just walk with me through these chapters, uh, you'll see, actually I'll do 6, 8, a little of 9, and touch of 16, but just some verses. You will see that there is coming to this planet a living hell. Horrible, horrible to think about going through. And all who are a part of Christ's church will escape that living hell. And these are only a few of the things that those who believe in Jesus now will miss during the tribulation. Chapter 6 of Revelation, starting in verse 5 and 6, there will be a worldwide famine unlike anything the world has ever seen. It says this, He broke the third seal, and the third living creature said, I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand, and a voice in the center of the four living creatures said, A quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, don't harm the oil and wine. And if you compare that with chapter 18, verse 8, you see that there's going to be a global famine of catastrophic effects on this planet. Secondly, look at verse 8. One-fourth of mankind is going to die, it says in verse 8. It says, And I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat it had the name Death, and Hades was following him. And authority was given over them, over a fourth of the earth, to kill with sword, with famine, with pestilence, and with wild beasts. Wow. Fourth of the earth. Some because of war. Some because of famine. Some because of wild beasts. Whether by death that is swift or instant, or death that is lingering and excruciating, 25% of all people will die. Now, the latest UN census tells us that there are 5,733,687,096 on the planet. So a quarter of this will be 1,433,421,774, or almost five and a half times the current population of the United States of America. Remember, our population in this world is doubling every 39.5 years. So every day the number of people who die in the tribulation, grows. Look at verse 12. It says in verse 12 of chapter 6, that I looked and he broke another seal, the sixth, and there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black like sackcloth made of hair. And the whole moon became like blood. And the stars fell to the earth as a fig tree casts unripe fruit when shaken by a great wind. 
and the sky was split apart like a scroll, and it's rolled up, and every mountain and island are moved out of their place, and the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave, and every free man hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? You know, thirdly, there's going to be a time of unprecedented terror on this planet. From the cosmic earthquake in the sky to earthly disasters, mankind will come to the point of longing for death and wanting to have it all over with. Look at chapter 8, verse 7. Another event. One-third of all vegetation is going to be burned. All grass, every tree, everything green is going to be destroyed. Can you imagine what that will do to the atmosphere? As it says in 8.7, the first sounded and there was hail and fire mixed with blood and they were thrown to the earth and a third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up. All the green grass was burned up. You know, and God doesn't exaggerate, by the way. He just tells it like it is. Look at verse 12. The sun and moon are darkened as nature goes into revolt. Turn to chapter 9, verse 3, down through 6. It says the gates of hell are going to be open. Hordes of locusts, the size of horses, are going to come on the earth. These locusts are going to be allowed to sting people like scorpions, and the pain will last for five months. And the Bible says that people are going to be begging God to let them die, but he won't let them die. And then chapter 14, verse 20, kind of winds down it says and this is talking about armageddon the wine press was trodden outside the city and the blood came out from the wine press up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles there will be a world war so bloody that the blood of those killed in that battle will flow in a little river 200 miles and as the animals walk through it it will splash blood up to the height of a horse's bridle that means you have to have a pretty big puddle of blood running 200 miles through desert and not being soaked up by the sand and this will be a called the battle of armageddon well real quickly just to make sure there's no confusion turn to the old testament zechariah 14 now if you don't know the old testament just go to matthew and flip back just about a handful of pages about three in my bible okay just before malachi the end of zechariah Okay, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Matthew. So Matthew, little Malachi, right there, the end of Zechariah, chapter 14. And I want to cover the first 11 verses with you just briefly. You might want to underline some of these, note some things in the margin. I want to explain to you the second advent of Christ, so different from the rapture, so different from the sweeping away of a bride to a wedding celebration, is the second coming of Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords to decimate the planet. Totally different events. This chapter, Zechariah 14, is the second advent of Christ, or the day of the Lord, or his second coming in power and flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who don't believe in him. Let me just walk through, starting in verse 1. First of all, this is the promised day of the Lord. Okay, that's what verse 1 starts with. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. In other words, all the stuff you're hoarding is going to be taken away from you. It's going to be divided right, right while you're guarding it. It's going to be taken away from you. This is the promised day of the Lord. Okay, verse 2. This is the day the ultimate world war occurs. Now, it's interesting. Depending on how old you are, you'll hear people say, The war. 
you know, and when I was growing up, the war, you know, was World War II. And then get a little older, and the war was the Korean War. And then the war was the Vietnam War. You know, we just, it just kind of changes as time goes by. This is the war. This is the ultimate world war occurs. Look at verse 2. For I, God says, I'm going to gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. Now, we've had a lot of people come through Jerusalem. We, we, you know, the Egyptians were fighting against it. The Babylonians were fighting against it. The Assyrians came against it. The Persians came against it. All the different brands and flavors of the Arab world have fought for it. The, the Turks came down. The British took it. And now there's the conflagration that goes on to this day. But God says, I'm going to gather, look at this, all the nations all the world is going to unite in this final ultimate world war to battle against Jerusalem. You know, Jerusalem is the epicenter of God's redemptive program. It's the epicenter of world history. It is the flashpoint of all. That, that little economically unimportant, geographically insignificant, socially uh, kind of out of touch with the world, little spot on the map is the most important spot on the planet. It's wonderful that God says that's where everything's going to take place and that's where everything's going to end. Continuing, the city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished, half the city will be carried off into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Why? Thirdly, look at verse 3. This is the day when Christ fights back. You know, he's been holding back all this time. He's been holding back as the Jews have been just basically beaten up and pillaged and plundered and murdered and ravished over all these centuries. He has held back when his son came and God the Father looked as God the Son was so mistreated from his birth onward, scoffed, reviled, evil spoken of threatenings against him and finally they did capture him they did murder him and he did offer himself and then his infant church was so badly treated and God has withheld uh, his wrath as the church has been the source of such hatred in the world as people have just because of the church hated them and it's been the it's been the recipient of such evil God's held back all this time he doesn't hold back anymore look at verse 3 Christ is going to fight back. The Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. Verse 4 continues. This is the day of Christ's second coming. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. It's still there today, waiting for his feet to touch down. And look what happens. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, and a large valley will be formed. Half the mountain shall move toward the north, half of it toward the south. Then, verse 5, you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal, and you will flee as you fled the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come, and all the saints with you. Ooh, he's not coming to get us. He's coming with us. And he's coming to rescue Israel, the remnant. Another point is in verse 6. The fifth aspect, 
This is a day like no other day on this planet. This is the promised day, verse 1. Verse 2, this is the ultimate world war day. Verse 3, this is the day Christ fight back. This is the day, number 4, that Christ comes, his second coming, and touches down. Verse 6, fifthly, this is a day like no other day on this planet. Look what it says. In this day it shall come to pass that that day there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but in an evening time it shall happen that it will be light. So it's a strange time. The light's going to diminish, and all of a sudden, it's going to start getting light in the middle of the night. It's going to scare them. Never happened before. Very unusual. It says that the sign of the Son of Man will show in the heavens, and it says all these nations surrounding and attacking Jerusalem are going to start mourning because they know it's happening. Finally, this is the day that starts a climactic, topographical, and geological change on the earth. Verse 8. In that day, it shall be that living waters will flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter, it's going to occur. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. Never, never before has God personally come down and taken control running this planet. And in that day... It shall be, verse 9 says, the Lord is one and his name one. Verse 10, and the land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimnon south of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate. From the tower of Hananiel to the king's winepress. And the people shall dwell in it and no longer shall there be utter destruction. But Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. This is the second coming. There are two separate moments coming in the perhaps not too distant future when life as we know it will be forever altered. The first moment is for us, and it's the unexpected sweeping away of Christ's church from the earth. The second moment is the day of the Lord, Christ's return in glory and powerful vengeance on the earth. What does the second coming of Christ call us to tonight? If we're not going to be on the earth when he comes the second time, if we're going to already be in his presence, swept away in a rapture out of this planet, what does the second coming even mean to us? Well, real quickly, turn to Revelation 19. I just want to show you one facet and maybe give you something to, to decide to do and to be tonight, okay? Revelation 19, verse 11, describes the second coming of Christ not to be confused with the rapture of Christ in 1 Thessalonians. But Revelation 19.11 says this. It says, And I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called, listen, faithful and true, and with justice he judges and makes war. This is the second coming of Christ. He's riding on a white horse. He's not waiting in the clouds for us, calling us home. He's not giving us a comforting hope to look forward to getting out of this world before his wrath comes. Now he's coming to give the wrath he's held back for so long to this planet. Christ is returning with his saints. He came for them in Revelation 4.1 and 1 Thessalonians 4. And during all of human history, he's been watching, he's been waiting, and nothing has missed his eyes. And now he begins to bring what verse 11 tells us. 
his faithfulness and truth to bear on this planet. And he begins to bring truth to bear on all the lies and all the falsehoods and all the deceptions of this planet. He will execute vengeance, so wait for him. And the first thing that the second coming of Christ should do is we should get out of the business of getting even with people. I mean, if they take your coat, give them your shirt too. We should not be venge-filled, retaliatory, getting even, getting our due people. That's why it really bothers me. Whenever there are strikes, I always turn the TV off because I would hate to see a Christian in there you know, fighting to get more because we all work for the same employer, God. And he's already told us how we should act. And we are certainly not those that get all we can get. Jude 15 says he's going to judge everyone. He's convict everyone of their ungodly acts, which they have done in ungodly ways. And of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Let's not be a part of any of that. Christians should be characterized by not striving, but being gentle and not retaliating. Secondly, he's going to repay all evil. He's going to execute vengeance, so wait for him. But he's going to repay all evil, so trust him. If someone has evilly treated you in the past, don't hold it. Don't weather on it. Don't let it build up in your heart. And, you know, some people, they can tell you to the minutest detail something that happened 50 years ago to them. They can describe the atrocity that happened to them. You know what that tells me? They have not forgotten the things which lay behind. They have not pressed forward to the things which are ahead. They're still living in the past. They're still reliving that. And this is what the scriptures say. We know him that saith, Hebrews 10.30, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, the Lord will judge. So we don't need to believe him. He'll repay all evil. Psalm 58.11 tells us one last point about Christ's coming. He's going to reward the righteous, so we ought to work for him. He's going to execute vengeance, so we need to wait for him and not do it ourselves. He's going to repay evil, so we just need to entrust it to him if someone has evilly treated us. But he's going to reward the righteous. So what we should be doing, instead of worrying about all the evil and getting even with everyone else, Psalm 58, 11 says this, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely he is God who judges the earth. He's going to reward the righteous. So just work for him. Work for him. Are all of our sadnesses on Jesus tonight? Are all of our anxieties and woes poured out on him? Only Jesus can give the rest and peace, so all is well. But how do we get that way? I mean, how do we yield to the true and righteous one that we're going to come with? By the way, the scriptures say we're behind him. He's on this white horse, and we're all behind him riding in to Jerusalem that day. I mean, that's going to be, that's better than an LL flight, isn't it? Just riding in on a horse. I, I mean, I've flown on an airplane many times and gotten there by a boat, never on a horse. Can't wait. You know, it's going to be great. But how do we get ready for that? Well, three ways. And for those of you that just wake up at the end, you know, so you can tell someone that you really were listening, it's time to listen, okay? If you missed everything else. Three attitudes, I think, that will get us ready for that secret coming of Christ. And the first one I call yieldedness. And, and what I mean by that is, let Jesus open this book to you, and it only comes by yieldedness. Let me read you a verse. And this is the first of three attitudes that Christ's return has built into my life, and I want to share them with you. This is the first thing. I mean, I study prophecy, and I've never been able to make charts out of it. You know, I mean, I, I just admire the people that can. You know what I get out of it? I should be yielded to Christ. Listen to this verse. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, Jesus expounded to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Luke twenty four twenty seven. You know what I get out of second, the second coming of Christ? 
that Jesus wants me to yield to him, have an attitude of yieldedness, so Jesus himself can open this book to me. Guess what? He wants to open it to you. And he'll open it to you if you'll yield to him. Yield what to him? How about first place? Why don't you let him open the book to you before you check the weather out? How about you open the book to him before you get on the internet? How about you let him open the book to you before you open the newspaper in the morning? You know, every time I see them throwing the newspapers early in the morning, you know, they throw them out there on all the lawns and and they get all wet out there. and, And I see people coming out so cute, see them out in their bathrobes. They think nobody's looking. I mean, we all watch the neighbors go out and get their paper in their bathrobe. I mean, it's funny. And you know what I think about? I think about manna in the Old Testament when God used to put out the manna early in the morning so that they could go out and gather it. And I think, you know, you're going out there to get an old newspaper, and it's, I mean, the stuff's past tense. Everything up to the minutes on the computer. I mean, who'd buy that old get-your-hands-dirty black newsprint anyway, you know? But I've got something that's hot out of the oven right here. And an attitude of yieldedness, if you give Jesus first place, he will personally open this book to you. Have you let him do it lately? Have you sat before this book late at night, early in the morning, at your lunch hour, on your coffee break, while you're sitting, waiting for someone? Have you opened it and yielded to him and say, I want you to open this to me. I want you to give me something that will change my life to look more like you. Number two, not only yieldedness, we need to have earnestness. I like this. 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired. They've searched carefully. They prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories which would follow. Do you know what? The Old Testament prophets were just dying to know what you know tonight. They were just dying to know what you experience today. Is there any earnestness in your life about all this? I mean, the ends of the earth are upon us. We are the ones whom God has chosen to have unfolded all the glories of the new covenant and all of the great prophecies of Christ's advent and his second coming. And we're a part of it all. And for some people, you'd think that it was nothing. I mean, it's far more interesting to keep up on the sports scores than it is to earnestly seek God earnestness earnestness look for Christ with all your heart every day every day finally the last one first one is yieldedness let Jesus open the book to you the second one is earnestness look for Christ with all your heart every day the last one is prayerfulness listen to Psalm 119 verse 18 the psalmist prayed this open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law Wondrous what kind of things? Wondrous statistics and facts about the Bible so you can be the Bible answer man and know all the trivia? Is it wonderful, you know, huge, overflowing knowledge? No. It's wonderful things about the person we love more than anyone else. And this is the last point. Prayerfulness means letting him get so close to you, you just can't stop talking to him. You know, it's so sweet to see our soon-to-be newlywed couple. I mean, they were just all giggly coming in the door tonight, you know, and just wanted to show that ring. Isn't that exciting? I hope it never ends. I hope they stay as giddy and in love in 20 years. Yeah, I see a lot of Christians the same way as a lot of married couples. You can't, you have to put a, 
you have to put a putty knife between them. They're just stuck together all the time. They're just kind of like, you know, uh, Siamese twins, joint at the hip and, and the heart and everywhere else. They're just like this, inseparable. Give them a couple years. They have two separate lives. That's what Christians are like. Why? Because there's not a spirit of prayerfulness. Jesus isn't so close to them, they can't stop talking to him. He's so distant, they can't even think about him half the time. How do you get close to him? Yieldedness. Come before him and give him a spot that's the most important spot and let him open the book to you. Earnestness. Come with such an anticipation that you can't wait for him to show something. Prayerfulness. Get so close to him, can't stop talking to him. That's the lifestyle that the second coming produces if we let it. Let's bow before the Lord. And just quietly with our heads bowed and more than our heads, our hearts bowed before him. Let's, let's open our hearts to the Lord Jesus tonight. He's coming back. Whether you think you're going to go in the first or second moment doesn't matter. They're going to end life as we know it. We need to get ready to meet him. Father, I pray that you would work into our hearts and yieldedness to your word and earnestness for your plan and a prayerfulness to you, O Christ. We want you tonight to get so close that we just can't stop talking to you. And once we get talking to you, we're going to tell everybody else about it because it's the greatest thing going. I pray that we'll go out of here echoing in our hearts, hallelujah, what a Savior. When you come, our glorious King, all the ransom home to bring, then anew this song will sing, hallelujah, what a Savior. It's only if we're singing it while we're here. As David lost his song, help us to find our song tonight and to be singing it as we go back into the sin-sick world we live in. Hallelujah. What a Savior you are. In your precious name we pray. Amen.